What must I do to inherit eternal life? I.e., how do I get to heaven? What would you say if someone asked you that question? Is it a question you've ever asked? More importantly, and most importantly, is it a question that you know the correct answer to? How do we inherit eternal life? You see, there are many false answers out there. And in going by these false answers, you will forfeit eternal life and you will wind up in hell. There is only one way to eternal life. In our passage that we read in Matthew chapter 19, it's a question that we find a young man asking Jesus. He has some ideas. He thinks he knows some of the right answers. But Jesus shows him that these ideas are completely wrong. Jesus points him to the right answer. But it turns out that the young man is not ready for that way. Jesus, in his response to the young man, is not being unkind or brutal with him in all that follows. Jesus is being honest with him. In Mark's account of this incident, we're told in Mark 10, 21, that Jesus loved this young man. These words are said to him in love. We'll discover that this young man had a few wrong ideas but he went to the right person. And for eternal life, you must also go to this person. You must have personal dealings with Jesus Christ yourself. You must seek him. You must appeal to him because only he can give you eternal life. We're going to consider three problems that this young man had which meant that he could not inherit eternal life. We're going to see that he had a problem of the hands, a problem of the head, and a problem of the heart. So we begin by considering the problem of his hands. You see, in verse 16, he comes asking what he must do. He asks what good he must do so that he could enter eternal life. He thought he could be righteous by his works. We've seen that he thinks, we see later on, he thinks that he is keeping the law well and he wants to do some sort of big thing to add to it, some good thing that will really secure his place. What must he do? What good thing must he do that he may have eternal life? He thought the work of his hands could get him to heaven. And Jesus' answer to him in verse 17 might seem a little surprising to us. Jesus begins by asking him a question about why he called him good. 
And then Jesus tells him that he will have eternal life if he keeps the commandments. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. That doesn't seem right, does it? That doesn't sound like the gospel. That doesn't sound like John 3.16. That doesn't sound like what we learned about eternal life in Sunday school. Keep the commandments. Well, Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus always knows what he's doing. See, what he's doing is using language the young man has used. The young man speaks about Jesus being good and about him doing a good thing. So Jesus is saying in his question, well, okay, let's think about that. Let's talk about what it means to actually be good. And then the young man wants eternal life by doing good. So Jesus says, okay, we'll talk about eternal life. And let's do it in terms of doing good, Keep in terms of God's law, in terms of doing good to your neighbour. You see, Jesus meets the young man where he is at. And Jesus does so to expose his heart, to expose his erroneous thinking. Friends, you can take your questions to Jesus. You can take your concerns. Jesus will always meet you where you're at. He won't leave you there. He'll always meet you where you're at. And however you are tonight, you can go to him. You can tell him what's on your mind. You can tell him what your concerns are, what your thoughts are about heaven, about being a Christian. Ask him to lead you into his truth. Ask him to teach you, to show you. He will meet you where you are and he will help you. But he won't leave you where you are. So in this question that Jesus asks him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Already Jesus is challenging this young man about whether he can attain to God's standards. Only God is good. Jesus is saying, do you realise what you're saying in calling me good? Jesus is making a, a subtle statement about himself, about his divinity. <coughs> but Jesus is also saying to this young man, do you realise what you're saying in wanting to do a good thing? Do you think you're going to please God by what you do? Do you think you're going to meet his standards by something you offer? God's character defines our moral standards. In setting the standards of morality on this world, God gave the standard as his very character and no greater standards can be conceived of. Now, if God's character are the standards for us to live by, well, I hope we can see that that means that none of us have met these standards. And then Jesus does another striking thing. Having responded by an interesting question, he then says, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. But don't worry, Jesus is not, is not saying he can earn it. Jesus is setting before this young man the way of works to show him that he can't attain to it, to show him that he cannot attain to salvation 
by works. And that's what will come out as we continue reading. So in verse 18, the young man then asks Jesus which ones, which commands should he keep? He wants to know which are the ones he should focus on the most, which are the most important and the ones that will best guarantee him eternal life if he keeps them. So Jesus answers him also in verse 18 and into verse 19. He gives him six instructions. He gives five of the Ten Commandments in the order six, seven, eight, nine, then five. And then Jesus gives a summary of these commandments by saying, love your neighbor as yourself, which elsewhere he has said is the, is the summary of the second part of the, the moral law. And it's actually a quotation from Leviticus chapter 19, where that is the instruction given for the people of Israel and how they live in the land. So Jesus gives five of the commandments and then a summary of them. And I hope we'll be able to see why Jesus chose these particular commandments and why he left out others. He did so to expose the young man's head problem. That's the second thing we see about this young man. He's a problem of the hands. He thinks that his work will earn him salvation. He goes to Jesus expecting to be told how he will attain it. And Jesus is showing him that he can't attain it this way, but he thinks he can. And that's what we see in verse 20. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? So secondly, we have the problem of the head. He thought he had kept them. He thought he had kept them to God's standards, to the standard God wanted him to keep them to. Since his youth, so his rebellious teenage years weren't spent like everyone else's. He was hitting the mark every time. In the Bible translation I grew up on, it says, these I've kept since I was a boy. As a child, this is how he was living. He was keeping them. Does this sort of attitude sound familiar? We've met other people that Jesus has encountered as we've gone through Matthew's gospel who have such a view. This young man's just a product of his day because this is what the religious leaders of the day were teaching. The Pharisees taught a shallow, outward, surface-level keeping of the law. This young man clearly hadn't been up in Galilee when Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount. We see there that Jesus says, unless you have a righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus in Matthew 5, he goes through various of these commandments. Once he lists here and he exposes how it's not just about ticking the box outwardly, each of them is a problem. It gives us a problem of the heart because it's not just about not committing adultery. It's about never glancing at someone and having any lust towards them. It's not just about not committing murder. It's about never having 
any bone of hatred within you or any feelings of hatred towards anyone. The law of God searches our hearts. It tests our very inner motivations. And so Paul rightly says in Romans 3, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. See, this young man didn't have a true understanding of God's law. He thought he was doing all right and he was keeping them to a good enough standard. He had a, a faulty knowledge of God's law and a faulty knowledge of himself. He had a problem of the head. For all those not in Christ, they are still under the covenant of works. Go out into the street and ask someone, how do you get to heaven? Ask them this question and they will say, be good. Be good enough, you'll be okay. Man is still under the covenant of works. We have not been transported into the covenant of grace through faith. In Christ. Many people know that. But they're not bothered. They don't care. That doesn't concern them. Why? Because of this head problem. They think they're doing quite well under the covenant of works. And maybe that's still you tonight. You think you're doing okay. You think God will be quite quite impressed with your efforts at living in this world. People are deluded into thinking like this. And Satan jumps on it to keep us and to keep people in that delusion. Why? People like it because it feeds the ego. I'm doing well. I'm earning my own eternity. But it's really just dead religion. Even people who are religious, who worship God, when they think they're earning his favour by giving to charity, giving to the church, coming out to church, going through the religious motions, maybe having worship in the house, and all the other things is dead. People have no conception of who God is. <coughs> People want eternal life, of course. They have respect and admiration for Jesus. But the teaching is that mankind is essentially good and we all keep the law to a good enough standard. Jesus is just a good teacher. He points us on the way to heaven and we get there ourselves. Friends, there's many a pulpit in this land from which you will hear such teaching. There is many a minister in this land today that would have sent that young man away at verse 20. Have you? Have you kept all these since you were Young, oh, that's great. Oh, you're doing well. Off you go, you'll be fine. But interestingly, 
This young man knows he's still missing something. He says it in verse 20. What do I still lack? I've kept all these. But I still lack something. He knows it deep within him. He's being honest with the Lord. What do I still lack? And friends, you will always feel that you're lacking something if you're going on your own efforts. Because your own efforts are never making the mark. And deep down you know it. This young man didn't understand that salvation is a gift God gives in his grace. It cannot be earned. It can only be received undeservingly. As Augustus Toplady said in his hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's the way it has to be to have everlasting life. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour else I die. That's it, you can give nothing for eternal life. You can earn nothing towards eternal life. You cannot take one step towards eternal life. It begins by admitting that you're completely helpless, you're powerless to save yourself, and you need to be rescued. Someone has to come and do something for you so that you can have eternal life. And the whole way you will contribute nothing, it will all be done for you. Friends, that's what Jesus has come to do by dying for our sins Calvary, by taking the punishment for our sins, by dealing with them, by making an end to them and rising again to everlasting life so that all who will trust in him will receive that eternal life. We have not earned it by our lives. We have broken God's law in every way. I hope you can see that. Jesus lived out the law perfectly. And that perfection of his life is given to all that trust in him. So that he takes the soiled garments of our sins and gives us the perfect white robe of his righteousness. And when we receive him, we are united to him and all that he has won for us through his death is given to us. So to have eternal life, you must receive Jesus Christ. And I beg him to do everything for you because you can do nothing. Rather than just telling him straight that he doesn't even come close to keeping these commandments, Jesus wants to show this young man. And so he makes a demand in verse 21. He tells him to sell all that he has and give among the poor and come and follow him. If he does this, he will have eternal life. There we go. The young man knows there's something lacking. He's kept the commands the best he can. 
And Jesus makes this, this demand of him. If he wants to be perfect, if he wants to be wholly dedicated to God and committed to the Lord, here it is. Strip yourself of everything. Get rid of it all. Come follow me, Jesus says. You will have it. He's been given the answer. He's been stripped of all the wrong answers and wrong notions he had about himself and earning it. There it is. Everything else in his life has to go. He's to follow Jesus. But we see in verse 22 that the young man, when he hears this, he goes away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And this brings us on to the third thing we see about him, the problem of his heart. Because actually in this, we will see that in this response in verse 22, he has broken God's law and he is unwilling to change and to put God first. It's interesting that Jesus didn't mention the 10th commandment regarding not coveting. He mentioned all the other commandments on the second table of the law about loving your neighbour as yourself. Five to nine got mentioned, but not number 10 about coveting. This man has a lot of riches. How often did he break this commandment, acquiring all his riches? Who knows? But actually, he's still coveting. Because now in possessing them, he has an unhealthy and idolatrous attachment to them. They consume him. He cannot part with them. He still wants them. He still must have them. And actually in this, he's not loving his neighbour as himself. He refuses to go with less to help the poor around him. He is much. He won't give to, have, to help those who don't have. So that command to love his neighbour as himself, he's broken that as well. And refusing the Lord's command. And of course, there's the first table of the law. Summarized as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Loving God with everything you have. Putting him first. Oh, that's broken because he can't give up his stuff to follow Jesus. He must have his things. Here is the son of God incarnate saying to him, follow me, come Follow me, put me first. He can't do it. He won't do it because his possessions had his heart. His treasure still on earth. And so he went away sorrowful. His possessions meant more to him than eternal life. He was offered treasure in heaven, in verse 21, but he chose treasure in earth, on earth. Those things meant more to him than God. What about you? Jesus said to this young man, if you want me, you can have me and you can have everything that I give. 
It was all offered to him. Jesus was saying, okay, you can have it all. But I must have your all. And that's the call he makes to every one of us. In many ways, this young man had a similar experience to Abraham. Here was his test of faith. Both were asked to make a sacrifice. Abraham, his only son Isaac. This young man, his possessions. Abraham was able to part with Isaac, believing that God could bring him back from the dead. But this man couldn't part with his riches. A lack of faith. He had no trust in Christ to provide. He needed his things. His things were his security. He couldn't just give them up and follow Jesus, knowing that all would be provided for when he was in the steps of the master. He couldn't do it. He liked what he had at hand. He liked to know that he could plan his future with his possessions. Of course, from Ecclesiastes, we've seen you can't do that. So do you have confidence that Jesus Christ can take everything? Because if you have him, you have everything. And you lack nothing. Do you have that confidence that you can give all to him? Do you trust him that much? I reckon at this point there's a line you're waiting on me saying. There's a few words of explanation on verse 21 you'd quite like me to give you. You want me to say, don't you, that Jesus is dealing particularly with the heart of this young man. It doesn't mean we all have to follow the command of verse 21. It doesn't mean we all have to give up everything we have, sell our possessions, our homes, our everything. That was that, it was for that particular individual whose treasure was on earth and not in heaven. It was his own particular heart problem that Jesus is dealing with then. And that was a question and the demand of him. You want me to say, we need money, we need food, we need possessions, we need homes to live in, that we're called to provide for ourselves, to work, to not be an unnecessary burden to others. You want me to say, we don't have to sell everything, we don't have to give all away to follow Jesus and inherit eternal life. And it's true. We don't. We can be Christians and still have possessions, have nice things, have our homes, have financial, material security. So I've said it. There you go. Are you happy now? Be honest. Are you relieved that I said that part? Are you relieved that Jesus doesn't make that demand of you? That makes Christianity a bit easier, doesn't it? Friends, don't we all struggle to a degree with idolatry? How would each of us actually respond if the Lord had come and told us to do this? 
it's a test of faith for us all, this one, isn't it? We can't be too hard on this young man because we know that if we're honest, we would struggle in this way. Friends, are we willing? If the call comes, if the Lord sends you elsewhere, if he makes it clear to you, are we willing? But if we are in Christ, he will make us willing. You see, he does give the strength and the grace to, to do what he calls us to do. He doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. But let us remember that being in God's kingdom is not just an extra benefit attached to our comfortable lives. It's not, well, I have as much money and comfort as I can have in this life. And, oh, yes, then I'll go to heaven as well, please. That's great. I'll have, I'll have that as the icing on the cake. Eternal life, I like the sound of that. Another string to my bow. That sounds great. A good eternity after building my empire on earth. Friends, we cannot serve two masters. So no, we're not to take this command that Jesus gave to that young man literally. But it might be you don't know what God's calling you to. You have to ask him. But he says to all of us, call, follow me, and we have to live with a loose grip on everything we have in this world. Where is your heart tonight? When you were considering there what it would mean to give up everything, to sell all, <coughs> what things came to mind? Are you too attached to anyone or anything? Is there anything else creeping in to that first place in your affections. Does all we have belong to God or, or ourselves? Now there might be that there are things we, we have to give up and the Lord makes clear to us that we must give up. Some people may give choose to give up things that are not inherently sinful something that they struggle particularly with as an idol, something that is a stumbling block to them or a family member, and they know that if that, that would be beneficial to themselves and others if they got rid of it. Other things that other Christians are able to have and to handle sensibly, but they know for them it's a bad idea. Interesting, how does the Apostle John end his first epistle? Keep yourself from idols. We've got plenty warnings to us from people in Scripture who didn't. Rachel hiding Laban's idols in her saddle. Achan, when they entered the Promised Land, taking things that look pleasing to him that should have been destroyed. <coughs> Judas, 
money, life on this earth. Ananias, Sapphira, keeping back a bit for themselves, but also wanting the names of those who gave everything. So this young man went away sorrowful, and I read this about him this afternoon that I found really chilling. One writer says about him that as he went away sorrowful, he renewed his allegiance to mammon. He renewed his allegiance to mammon. So friends, now just to conclude verses 23 to 26, we can see that Jesus wants to instruct his disciples on what has just happened. And he used the the striking illustration in verse 24 that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. We just take that illustration at face value. A camel, one of the biggest animals known in the area, taller than us, and then a needle, the smallest hole we can imagine. And for someone to enter the kingdom of God, it's like putting the camel through that little needle. Jesus is not attacking people who are more well off. There's nothing inherently wrong with money. It's people's attitude towards it. It makes people self-sufficient. It makes them self-righteous. And of course, I think it can apply to poor people as well. Poor, poor people struggle with love of money as much as rich people do. You can idolise what you have. You can equally idolise what you don't have. Coveting, 10th commandment, back to that. But this picture is so striking for us. It's, it's almost absurd. It's, it's silly in a way. Camel. A needle, be it a sewing needle, a knitting needle, whatever needle <coughs> you want. It's tiny. Jesus is showing us the greatness of the impossibility. For someone to enter God's kingdom. Why are the disciples astonished in verse 25? They are greatly astonished when they hear this. Well think about it. In the Old Testament we read it in the Psalms and throughout the prophets in Israel. Riches were a sign of God's blessing. They denoted God's favour. Prosperity in the land. And here has here is a rich young man. And so people of Israel would say he's blessed of the Lord. The Lord has been good to him. And here's a young man who is zealous for the faith. He's keen. He's willing in many ways. Luke tells us that he was a, a ruler, a man of influence. Surely a great person to have on side, the kind of person you want on your team. Disciples are saying, look at this man with all his gifts, his resources. Who then can be saved if he can't? He's so keen, he wants to. He's come and sought you out, Jesus. Which of us can be saved? Jesus saying it's impossible. It is impossible for you to enter heaven on your own. You will never get there. You will never make the cut. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Your best 
efforts to please God are also sins against God because your best efforts are not done with motivations coming from a pure heart. They are not pleasing to God on our own because we sin in everything we do. Sin has infected everything we are and everything we do and on your own you will not get there. Your heart is too big a barrier. Our sin has created such a gulf between us and our Creator. It's not only the sins you've committed up till now, but the truth is you can't stop yourself from committing further sin. You can't change yourself. It's impossible for man to enter the kingdom of God. But how I love verse 26. <clears throat> what is impossible for man is possible for God. God can do the impossible. God can change the human heart. What we need is for God to work to give us life. We need the new birth. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We cannot make ourselves born again. God makes people born again. And we need faith and repentance coming from renewed hearts, which are the work of God, which are gifts of his <coughs> grace. So it's impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible for us to have eternal life on our own. So what are you going to do? Because it's possible with God. Friends, don't go to the law as this young man did. Don't go to the law to be saved because in going to the law, you're going to yourself. Because what the law presents you with is commandments to keep and you can't keep them. So the law puts it on you and it's impossible for you. But it's possible with God. So I hope you can see the logical place to go. Go to God. Take your sins to him and say, Lord, I can't do anything about these. Are we looking to God's resources or our own? Are we trying to provide for ourselves or are we looking to his provision of a saviour? Because that is what he has provided in his son, Jesus Christ. And all who <coughs> go to Jesus and ask him for forgiveness and ask him to save them and surrender their lives to him, he will take to be his own and he will give eternal life. He will wash you clean in his blood. He will renew you. He will save you and keep you now and forever more. God's demonstrated his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Take hold of the means God has provided. This is the only way to be saved. That's what you must do to inherit eternal life. And it's not a work going to Christ. It's receiving what is offered to you in the gospel. Taking him 100% what Jesus has done, 0% yourself. <coughs> Recommit yourself to him tonight. Ask him perhaps for the first time to save you.
Ask him for assurance you're saved if you're lacking that. Ask him to take over, to have you. Take him to be your all in all. As Charles Wesley said in his hymn, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have made a way open to heaven for <coughs> undeserving sinners. And the way to heaven is the way to you, O oh God, to know you, to delight in you and belong to you forevermore. Thank you for providing your son. How we thank you for Jesus. And we pray that all our life and hope and strength and joy would be found in him this night. Please bless our time of fellowship together now. Go before us as we go into this week. And may you be evermore our God and we your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us finish by singing Psalm 112 in the Sing Psalms. Please turn to Psalm 112. If we've seen in our passage tonight the, the wrong attitude to have towards riches and possessions, this psalm shows us something of the, the correct attitude to have. <coughs> psalm 112 in the Sing Psalms. We can sing the whole psalm, verses 1 to 10. Praise God, blessed is the man who fears the Lord and finds delight in following his words. His children will be mighty in the land. His line will know the blessing of God's hand. Riches and wealth within his house are found. His righteousness forever will abound. The man who stands for mercy, truth and right will find the darkness turned to morning light. Good is the man who gives and freely lends. To his affairs with justice he attends. Surely a righteous man will stand secure. His memory forever will endure. Let us sing the whole psalm, Psalm 112, verses 1 to 10. fears the Lord and finds delight in following his word. His children will be mighty in the land. His line will know the blessing of God's hand. Riches and wealth within his house are found. His righteousness forever will abound. The man who stands for mercy, truth and right will find the darkness turn to morning light. It is the man who gives and freely lands to his affairs with justice he attends. Surely a righteous man will stand secure. 
His memory forever will endure. Bad news comes, he will not be afraid. His heart is firm, he trusts the Lord for aid. He will not be alarmed, his heart holds fast. He'll view his foes in triumph at the last. Freely shares his riches with the poor. His righteousness forever will endure. The Lord himself exalts his servant's name. He gives him strength and dignity and fame. Wicked seeing this will feel dismay. He'll gnash his teeth and soon will waste away. The wicked and their dreams will come to naught. They never will enjoy what they have sought. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.